We'll hear argument now in number 951184, Dan Glickman, Secretary of Agriculture versus Wildman Brothers and Elliott, Inc. Mr. Jenkins. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In this case, respondents challenge on First Amendment grounds payments toward advertising designed to promote the products that they offer for sale. Whether they are measured under the integrated bar and union line of cases that we believe is appropriate, or under the central Hudson test for restrictions on commercial speech, the generic advertising programs pass constitutional muster. In our view, the regulatory framework at issue here is most analogous to the integrated bar and union context. This Court has applied the central Hudson test, where government has restricted or prohibited the dissemination of truthful commercial information. But the marketing order provisions at issue here do not ban, suppress, or restrict respondent speech in any way. May I ask a question at an early stage, Mr. Jenkins? Uh, I think you take the position here that you didn't, that the government didn't argue that the Abood line or the union line cases uh, wasn't argued in the Ninth Circuit because of the Cal Almond decision in that court. But the administrative law judge suggests that the government, at least in that forum, said that uh, the Abood line didn't apply. And I'm just wondering if the government has waived that, if we can't just assume that the central Hudson test applies. Well, I don't in light of the posture taken below. I, I don't think so, Justice O'Connor. In fact, the government has argued throughout this litigation that this, these programs satisfy both Central Hudson and the Abood line of cases. We, but it me. does appear that the government below chose not to urge the Abood line, took that tactic, and I don't know why we should address that here. Well, Your Honor, I, I disagree with that characterization of our position below. I believe that in our briefs, and in the district court in particular, we argued expressly that the Abood standard was satisfied and that the Central Hudson test was satisfied. It is true that we did not argue in the district court or in the Court of Appeals that that was the only appropriate test. Uh, but I do think that we've argued consistently that both tests are satisfied. In the Court of Appeals, as you've said, uh, it's true that we were laboring under the, the adverse precedent in Cal Almond where the Central Hudson test was applied. But we did refer to the frame case from the Third Circuit, which did rely in part on a boot. So I, I think that argument is and preserved. Both of those lines of cases, of course, deal with the First Amendment, don't they? It, quite so, Mr. Chief Justice. That's certainly the case. This, Mr. Jenkins, assuming that, that we apply one or the other test in, in, in a way that, that we requires us to, um, uh, to determine the value of the government's interest. Do you claim that the value of the government's interest uh, depends on, uh, on, on a, a government concern over and above that of the growers whose products they are advertising? Or, on the other hand, do you claim that the government's interest is essentially derivative, that it's important simply because the growers themselves want to do this, uh, and that, that desire, that, that vote, in fact, on their part establishes its importance? Which is it? Well, I, I think it's the latter, Justice Souter, but I think it's even broader than that. The, the Agricultural Marketing Agreement Act expressly sets out the goals of that statute and of the marketing orders, which include establishing orderly market conditions for the covered commodities. Uh, Congress, as in the integrated bar context and as in the union context, uh, has chose to, left, to leave in the first instance to the regulated industry the determination whether in a particular region as to a particular commodity uh, that interest is threatened. 
but we think that both the, the overwhelming support by the industry and the record in this case uh, indicate that that interest was certainly implicated but, here. But the growers, as I understand it, do not vote in any narrow or specific sense as to whether the, the interest is threatened. They simply vote as to whether they want the advertising uh, program or not. Isn't that it? Well, I, I think that's correct, Justice Souter, but uh, that just is, is at the core of the government's interest. Where private industry, and I would add the Secretary, has to make a determination that, private, that uh, generic advertising would further the, tend to further the interests of the Act, uh, that is because in a particular region, under a particular marketing order, uh, the need exists. Is, is that what, how you would explain the, what struck me at least as the peculiarity in this case, that apparently there are, I guess, peach growers, for example, in some 30 states, but the only ones who seem to, to, uh, uh, to have expressed a need for, for this advertising scheme are California peach growers. Is, is, uh, is, is the explanation for that, that there simply uh, has not been a, uh, a demonstrated instability in markets elsewhere? I think that's true, Justice Souter, but I also does, like to... Does the record support that? It, it, it does not, and it, let me make clear the way in which this act uh, operates. Uh, Mr. Jenkins, before you do that, may I ask you, I think, a question that is of a, a, a similar basic kind. You... Uh, latch on to the Abood and Keller cases. What is the government interest here that compares to the labor peace or the regulation of the bar? Uh, That's what I don't understand. Why is is it so important that we have these orders? What purpose that compares with Collective bargaining underlies all of this. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, as I've said, first the broader interest is in orderly market conditions. I think the legislative history of the Agricultural Marketing Agreement Act, uh, the 1954 legislative history of the the, uh, adoption of promotional programs, uh, and the record of the formal rulemaking that gave uh, birth to the advertising provisions of the marketing orders indicate the the economic hardship that results and the economic instability in the nation as a whole that results from this wide fluctuation uh, of market prices uh, when particularly farmers but other elements of the industry. Well, I could understand that if this were across the board. If you you said there's this compelling need and so we do it for all agricultural commodities. But it seems to be rather haphazard. Well, I think that relates to my answer to Justice Souter's previous question, which is that taking, for example, one of the the, uh, proposed uh, disparities is between uh, California-grown peaches and Georgia-grown peaches. And I think it's important to look at the regulatory framework here, which is commodity-specific and region-specific. Taking peaches as an example, first, California is responsible for the majority of peaches that wind up uh, on people's shelves. But more importantly, uh, between two different regions, there are vast disparities in, in labor costs and quality. The length of the season in California is much longer. California-grown peaches have a, a nationwide market, whereas Georgia-grown peaches are basically locally grown and consumed along the eastern seaboard. Uh, there are transportation costs that are different. There are investment costs that are different. I think that the particularized nature, uh, commodity-specific nature and region-specific nature of these marketing orders reflects narrow tailoring rather than arbitrariness. Uh, How can it be narrow tailoring when, the, uh, when, in effect, the tailoring is, is done by a non-governmental entity? Uh, I mean, the tailoring to which you are referring, market-specific, region-specific, is simply done by vote of the people who are growing the peaches. 
Well, that's not entirely true, Justice Souter, insofar as the, the marketing, uh, the uh, Agricultural Marketing Agreement Act treats different commodities in different regions differently. But you're, you're certainly correct that it's the industry in the first instance, a supermajority, two-thirds majority of producers, that cause the marketing order to come into being. Uh, that's because Congress, I think reasonably, has determined that people in the industry operating day-to-day are the best measure of need. Mr. Jenkins, do we have to believe, I mean, this argument sounds like something time-warped out of the 19 19- 20s, I mean, or the 30s, uh, the, and, and this, this is a remnant of, uh, of the National Industrial Recovery Act when, when this kind of an argument was made for every industry in the country. And indeed, they tried to have marketing, uh, the equivalent of marketing orders for every industry in the country. It was found not to be, uh, not to be true and not to be effective. Now, do we have to believe it, that some, somehow it is effective? for agricultural marketing orders, but, but having the, the government in cooperation with the industry, the, the corporate state it was called in Italy, uh, as an efficient mechanism for producing economic pr- prosperity? I, I think so, Justice Clare, for two reasons. First, uh, as we've indicated in our brief footnote three, Congress, since the Court of Appeals decision in this case, has reaffirmed the importance of these programs and, in fact, expanded them and made significant factual findings regarding their importance. Just, but, just for agriculture, but, though. I mean, Congress hasn't done it for everything else. Has not done it for every I mean, it, commodity. It seems to true. express the belief that elsewhere that isn't true. Well, I, I don't think so. Again, if I can... Market disorder is okay. Indeed, it's what drives the market. Well, no, Justice Scalia, I think the determination first is that there may not be significant market uh, disorder and fluctuation in those industries where, where private industry, where producers have not felt the need to invoke the government's aid. But if I can analogize again... They will invoke the, the government's aid anywhere. You, where have they not felt the need to invoke the government's aid? Well, well take the government's aid wherever they can get it. Well, I don't think so. For example, there are a number of commodities for which marketing orders are authorized, but where the industry has not chosen to use them, to ask for them. In, in plums, for example, in 1991, the California, the aspects of the marketing order that relate to plums were terminated because there was an industry-wide referendum and the plum producers found that it was no longer important. But if I could again analogize to the union context, not every workplace is unionized. It's only where a majority of workers feel that a union will effectuate their interest and therefore Congress's interest in labor peace. Well, isn't, isn't, isn't it, a, a, at least though, couldn't Congress find as a fact that in agriculture, at least since after the First World War, there's always been a problem. If there's a good crop, there, the prices are low. And if the prices are good, there's virtually no crop. So it, it's a totally different situation from most other kinds of, of, of marketed goods. Well, we think so, Mr. Chief Justice, and I think particularly as to these commodities, but, that is true. But that, that, uh, that, that could justify the marketing orders, and, but it certainly doesn't support if any, with any necessity the, the advertising. You could have marketing orders and try to or, organize the market without any government advertising. But that's certainly true as a technical matter, uh, Your Honor, but it's also true that in adopting, both in, in adopting promotional programs, Congress found, and in adopting the, these particular marketing order provisions, the Secretary found that these, uh, uh, the ability to invoke uh, generic advertising activities has a beneficial effect and, in fact, directly advances. What is, what is the test that you say we must apply to determine the validity of uh, this um, uh, provision requiring advertising. Do we have to find that there is a real substantial harm and that this is a provision that's uh, narrowly tailored to, to, uh, to eliminate it? Or is the standard that's applied something far more deferential? 
Well, uh, Justice Kennedy, I think it is more deferential, but if I could step back for a moment. I think that, that certainly if this Court were to conclude that uh, regulating these commodities and establishing orderly market conditions in terms of its effect on the national economy was a trivial interest, then uh, the government would lose in this case. I, I think that because speech is involved? Uh, I, I'm sorry. Because speech is involved? Well, insofar as uh, the First Amendment rights of, of handlers are affected, then there must be, I suppose, more than a, a, an irrational uh, governmental interest. Uh, but I think there's no question that the interest here is, is substantial. Uh, if, insofar as your question about what test should apply, we do think it's more deferential. Mr. Well, in the commercial speech, speech context, it, it, it seems to me that you, you don't have to uh, establish a, a very clear governmental interest in order to prevail. If it's, if it's simply commercial speech necessary to move a line of goods, isn't that the end of it? Well, yes. What, 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 what is the case, the, 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 the closest case uh, that you have to suggest a proper standard that we should use here? Which case is it? Turner Broadcasting or? or no, Your Honor. Zotterer case? Or what, what? Uh, Zotterer, insofar as the Central Hudson test, uh, the commercial speech analysis is, is applicable, Zotterer would probably be the closest case insofar as it involved uh, the aspect of compelled uh, disclosure of information as, as distinguished from restrictions on speech. But we think that the speech interests in this case are attenuated in, in several respects. First, because it's commercial speech. Second, because there's no restriction on respondents' ability to advertise uh, in any respect. Third, because... Well, let me ask you about that. Uh, one of respondents' complaints is that the 1989 advertising guide uh, promoted a proprietary variety of nectarine, the Red Gym, which is grown exclusively by one of the growers and a grower who does not want to lease or sell a royalty to that. So Red Gym is grown only by one grower. Now, do you defend that practice under the well, under any test? Your Honor, we do, but let me first say that That's I think... That's amazing, that the government could take money from everybody in the industry, every grower of peaches and nectarines, and advertise one grower's exclusive use to a patented well, fruit. Well, Justice O'Connor, if, if that were the dominant or even a, perhaps a plurality... Well, do, you, do you defend the right of the government to do that? Justice O'Connor, we would... Just answer that isolated question under any test. Uh, I suppose my answer is no. We no. would not defend an overarching governmental goal of, of advertising a particular competitor. But you say if it happens once in a while, it's okay. We well, can overlook that. Just so, kind of, I think it's important to look in, in our, uh, the joint appendix in volume uh, two at page 531. Uh, this is the varieties chart uh, to which respondents were referring. And uh, among the list of many, many varieties, there is included the Red Gym, which uh, as you pointed out, is a proprietary variety right. shipped by only one handler. Right. Now, we think that this is a, an infinitesimal uh, aspect of this program. So you say if there are violations, they're de minimis, and so we can ignore them. Is that, in a nutshell, mm. what you say there? That's part of our argument. Would you clarify one more thing for me? Uh, assessments under this program run against the handlers. Is that right? That's correct. Not the growers. That's correct. 
Do the handlers pass it on to the growers? That, that's the expectation of the way in which this program operates. And, and, I, and who has to vote to terminate the program, the growers or the handlers? The growers vote in the first instance to terminate. I would note, however, that in adopting the uh, uh, advertising provisions of this marketing order, yeah. handlers also uh, As well as the growers. That's correct. To set it in place in the first place, handlers and growers that's vote. That's correct. But to terminate it, only growers vote. That's correct. And let me... Have any of the growers asked for a vote on peaches and nectarines in California? Well, in, in fact, Your Honor, there are per periodic referenda, I believe, every four years. In the last referenda, there was overwhelming support for this program, mm -hmm. uh, I believe between 75 and, and 83 percent. Mr. Uh, Jenkins, this relates to Justice O'Connor's question about the big gym and, and, and... Red gym. Red gym, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know how I could have made that mistake. <laughs> and, and ties it into to the government's assertion that a booed governs here. Let me read you what, what uh, I wrote in opinion joined by Justices O'Connor, Souter, and Kennedy in a case called Lehnert versus Ferris Faculty uh, Association. What is distinctive, the opinion said, about the free riders who are non-union members of the union's own bargaining unit is that in some respects they are free riders whom the law requires the union to go out of its way to benefit, even at the expense of its other interests. In, in the, in the uh, labor union context, the union has a fiduciary obligation to every one of the employees, whether they're union members or not, and sometimes has to sacrifice its own interest to those obligations. That is not the case, as I understand this program. It, it can be the case that advertising will benefit a mere majority of the handlers and severely, uh, uh, severely impair the interests of, of a minority of members. You, you don't assert that there's a, a, a fiduciary obligation here on the part of the organization, as there is with unions, do you? We don't, Justice Scalia, assert that there's something comparable to the duty of fair representation in this context, although uh, that is similarly true in the integrated bar context. Uh, that there is no uh, concomitant duty of fair representation. Well, I think the bar is a special situation uh, and, and have always felt that. But as far as unions go, you, 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 have, uh, you have the distinctive fiduciary obligation. I, I just don't see how you can, you can take a boot and apply it to this situation where a majority can harm the minority's interests. Well, Justice Scalia, I also think that, that the majority cannot uh, uh, as an, an overwhelming, either as a goal or as the effect, harm the minority's interest. There are significant safeguards in place, uh, both regulatory and statutory, to assure that there is not overwhelming harm uh, or, or even significant harm to uh, handlers as individuals. I'd also point out, I mean, in the integrated... But some of them here say they're being harmed. I'm they're, sorry, they're, they're, Some of them here say they're being harmed, that the mere advertising of, of generically peaches uh, harms them because they are trying to convince the public that all peaches are not fungible. That, that some kind of peaches are really good peaches, and their interests are harmed by any generic peach advertising. But, Justice Scalia, I don't see how that removes this from the Abood line of cases. It's similarly true that if I'm an employee and I'm opposed to maternity leave, and the union nonetheless negotiates a, a maternity leave clause in our contract, I have no First Amendment right to prevent that. Although I feel that I'm being harmed, and my, both my First Amendment uh, interests, I feel, uh, and my practical interests are being uh, harmed, there's no violation of the duty of fair representation, nor is there a violation of the First Amendment. Mr. Mr. Uh, Jenkins, uh, uh, supposing there's such a thing as the Beer Institute, which is a private organization devoted to generic advertising for beer, and supposing some of its members feel that some of the microbreweries who, who aren't members are kind of free-riding on the generic, 
Could the Beer Institute go to Congress and say, look, we want to have a kind of a marketing agreement and some generic advertising, and we want to bring these freeloaders on board, so let's assess everybody who, who produces any beer? Well, Mr. Chief Justice, I think if it were, in fact, an important governmental interest... Well, uh, I, I, I'm sure the beer people would think it was. Well, I, you, I suppose, you think beer is less important than peaches? <laughs> I have no, no comment on that, but I, I do think that, uh, of course, it's up to this Court to determine as a matter of law whether the interest that Congress, in this case, seeks to achieve is an important or substantial one. Mr. Uh, Jenkins, on that point, I understand a portion of these marketing orders that deals with inspection, quality controls, and nobody is contesting that everybody can be required to pay for the cost of inspecting, assuring health and safety standards. But the, whatever importance that interest has, does that spill over to the advertising is an important interest? Aren't these quite discreet? So one could say, yes, the government's got a very important interest to making sure that health requirements are met, but the advertising, the promotional interest, doesn't have the same strength, does it? Well, Justice Ginsburg, I just have a two-part answer to that. First, I think that the other things that this market, these marketing orders allow have to do with increasing consumption. They're not uh, safety and health regulations. Those are regulated through a, a different set of programs. Uh, so the question is, if, if there is a justi an adequate justification for those aspects, does the availability of generic marketing, generic advertising, also help to achieve that goal? It but, may also help, but does it have the same importance as maturity standards um, and the inspection controls? Well, I, I think, Justice Ginsburg, under this Court's cases, the, the question has not been uh, is the means toward the end as important? Is one means as important as another? But is first, is the end important? And then secondly, does the means chosen uh, advance the end? And so I think uh, the record in this case does demonstrate that the end of orderly market conditions and sustained demand for these products is significantly advanced by the means that's chosen, including generic advertising. But your, your argument is on that, as I understand it, that we have generally accepted the proposition that advertising induces people to buy what is advertised. I mean, do you, you, there's kind of an, uh, an assumption as a matter of law that advertising works to, to some degree, and, and I, I will grant you that. But is that enough in a, in a case like this? Because uh, it seems to me, number one, that advertise, the assumption that advertising works doesn't tell us very much about, way, about whether the advertising uh, is creating or, or, or advancing an orderly market uh, as opposed to a less orderly one. And it doesn't tell us very much about what the difference is between the effect of advertising, either on consumption or orderly markets in California, uh, and the, the failure of advertising with respect to markets everywhere else. I guess to put the, my question in a nutshell, are the, are the peach growers in the other, whatever it is, 29 states, uh, making less of a profit in a chaotic market as opposed to the California growers who, as a result of this advertising program, are making measurably more money in an orderly market? 
Do we, does the record indicate that? Well, Justice Stewart, let me answer the, the second part of your question first. You asked earlier about the record. I think it's important to note that here the government was defending a particular program, and so the record doesn't reflect, for example, why Georgia peaches are not regulated. As I've indicated, there are, are uh, reasons why different markets are treated differently. But the record doesn't reflect it because, in our view, our burden is to demonstrate that this program satisfies uh, the constitutional requirements. And we think that the evidence amply demonstrates First, that advertising, generic advertising programs, uh, advance the interest of consumer demand for these products. And in fact, it makes consumers below, buy them, is what you mean. That's correct. Yeah. And both of the courts below found that. And then secondly, viewed in the, in the context of this act, it provides the secretary and the commodity committees with a tool for influencing consumer preferences. And I think it, it's the inevitable, the, c- the conclusion is inevitable that that aids in regulating uh, market conditions. If the secretary, insofar as the secretary. Well, I, it, it regulates only in the sense that it, it, we, we will assume that it creates some demand that would not have been there otherwise. Well, but when not, we're faced okay. with a situation in which there are, in fact, contrasting markets, and we want to know, even under a comparatively relaxed standard, what the causal connection is between the advertising and orderly markets. It seems to me sensible to look at the markets where the advertising isn't going on to see if they are depressed or disorderly. And, and I take it we cannot do that in this case because the record just doesn't tell us anything about it. I think that's generally correct, but I would also isn't, note... Isn't it fair to say, and I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, it, it's also the case that these markets are very different, so that if there is sufficient demand... But uh, how do we know that? Well, we don't, Justice Souter, but as I've said, I don't think we need to know that in order to answer the question that's at issue here. So to you're saying... Or, I'm sorry. Uh, to take a specific case, in this record, there's nothing like there was in the case before the Third Circuit, the Meek case, where... The court said, well, we can understand the government has made a case that this industry is in disaster shape. But there's nothing of that kind here, that the peach and nectarine industry is about to fall apart, is it? Well, Justice Ginsburg, I think the record in the frame case was quite similar, but the program was somewhat different. The beef program focuses almost exclusively on promotional programs and advertising. And so insofar as Congress perceived a problem, and the only thing it did about it was to create uh, promotional advertising programs, the, the Third Circuit concluded correctly, we think, that there was a problem that, that existing that Congress sought to address. Here, Congress has used a larger number of tools. Uh, but but you, I, am, am I wrong in, in having the impression that Congress made a determination with respect to the state of the meat uh, market and said we have to respond to, to that terrible situation and there were no such findings by the legislature here? I, I think with respect, Justice Ginsburg, that's incorrect. I think uh, the district court in particular made findings as to the type of problem that Congress was trying to get at. And in fact, cites the congressional record uh, indicating that there were, in fact, uh, gluts of supply, that there was suppressed demand. But the question is whether Congress made the findings, not whether the district court did. Did no, Congress uh, make the findings? Congress was citing, uh, pardon me, the district court was citing Congress's findings, but let me be clear. Citing the findings or? or, or, or we're citing congressional record uh, reports and statements by not, not the whole Congress, but by some individual members of Congress. Some were from reports, or other committee reports. That's correct. But there was no congressional finding. Well, Your Honor, I think in the in the act itself is a congressional finding that programs are necessary. That that programs. But, but is there anything? Are you telling me that the record from Congress? is comparable, but there was no more that Congress said about the meat industry 
than it said about the food industry. I, I think it is comparable, but I want to be specific because I, I don't want to uh, mislead the court. Congress made findings both in 1937 when it adopted the act and then in 1954 when it added promotional programs, not advertising specifically. It sub Congress subsequently added advertising as among the promotional programs. And we think Congress was not required to make additional findings uh, as when it, when it had already indicated what it found promotional programs uh, to accomplish. It's also true that in the formal rulemaking by the Secretary, uh, the record when the advertising specifically was adopted, there are extensive findings. In fact, even the Court of Appeals found that there were extensive findings in rejecting respondents' APA challenge, uh, that this type of advertising did effectuate the goals of the Act. That's a statutory requirement. Uh, if I could, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Very well, Mr. Jenkins. And Mr. Campaign, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I think there's one thing everybody's missing, and that is, what is the problem? What is the problem with peaches, plums, and nectarines in California that's any different than the other 32 states that grow these commodities? Disorderly markets are the problem. Well, Justice Scalia, the solicitor, in answering your question in that regard, I believe misspoke. He indicated that there was a finding that there was disorderly markets. And he cites the 1954 Act, which doesn't deal with that subject whatsoever. The way the, the promulgation records show here, because we have an unusual situation that Justice O'Connor spoke about in the community nutrition case, where we file a 15A petition. We sue be, before an ALJ employed by the Secretary of Agriculture. She gave the government every opportunity possible. As a matter of fact, they stipulated that Exhibit 297 and they made that stipulation at stipulation number 57, I'm sorry, 59, that that was the exclusive rulemaking record. When the district court relied on... Just a minute, Mr. Campbell. Yes. That isn't terribly helpful to simply hold up a brief and say that okay. stipulation number 59, we don't know what's... If you, if you want to make a point, make it so that we can all understand it. Very well, Your Honor. In that stipulation, the administrative law judge said... I've got a problem. I don't understand what some of you are expressing in your questions. I want to give you every opportunity to show me that there's disorderly marketing going on in California, but not in the other 32 states. And, and the, sti the stipulation that was entered into is that the USDA relies on Exhibit 297. Can we find it in something that we have? Before? Yes. It's uh, page 134A of our appendix to the our opposition to the petition, Your Honor. In there, they actually stipulate that the government relies solely and exclusively on Exhibit 297, and I'm paraphrasing, as being the entire rulemaking record regarding the implementation of the advertising program. It doesn't say exclusively in what I'm reading. It says, as being the entire rulemaking record, oh, okay. on the third line, Your Honor, regarding the implementation of the advertising record with respect to peaches, plums, and nectarines, which occurred approximately six years after the Act was amended. The, in the next sentence, Can, can I ask you a yes. question? We basically have a constitutional question here and an awful lot of details floating around. Would it make any difference as a matter of constitutional law if Congress had made a finding that this particular market had particular problems that justified this kind of group 
advertising program. Would you still have the same uh, uh, constitutional argument? Uh, it would make a huge difference, Your Honor. They would have an easier time with Central Hudson. So you're not saying this sort of program is always unconstitutional? No, Your Honor. Despite what the Wall Street Journal said last week, we're not saying that the beef program has to be thrown out or the milk program has Why to be thrown out. Why can't Congress leave those findings to be made by the Secretary? Congress does that all the time. But in this case... Establishes a basic framework for a program and says if an executive officer finds a certain situation to exist, he can take certain actions. They do that all the time. Uh, in this case, Your Honor, I don't need to address that issue, although... I ask you about oh, I'm sorry. Of course Congress can delegate its legislative authority, uh, despite Carter v. Cole, because of the subsequent cases to the Secretary of Agriculture. But he didn't do that in this case, Your Honor. The 1954 Act that the solicitor is referring to was the Post-Korea Act. It didn't have anything to do with advertising. The Advertising Act, that's 608C6I, was a, came into existence in 1965. Well, in connection with that, Mr. Kemper, you don't have to attack here the various uh, health inspection provisions, the pro rata provisions, that sort of thing. And I take it you're not challenging the basic congressional authority to enact something like that. You're simply trying to separate out the advertising provision. Yes, Your Honor. We're assessed on average 19 cents a carton. Nine cents goes for quality control and inspection. We have no problem with that. 53%, that is 10%, goes to generic advertising. Well, what is the difference between, you said, what is the problem there's a regulatory problem. If you think this program is unjustified, I guess you can go to the courts and say it's arbitrary, capricious, abuse of discretion, and get it thrown out. It did. Right? Yeah. All right. But we're talking about the First Amendment. Yes, Your Honor. So what is the First Amendment problem that your client has? Two. It wouldn't be shared by anybody who used to fly on the airlines and had to pay money in part for messages that they might have disagreed with that would have been spent by the Air Transport Association required by the Civil Aeronautics Board or exactly the same thing in the utilities industry or the trucking industry or any taxpayer who pays taxes which then is spent by the government on messages they disagree with. In other words, what's the First Amendment interest here that isn't shared in thousands of regulatory situations by millions of members of the public whose money the government often takes to spend or have other private people spend on messages that they might not want to pay for. Your Honor, we would have no objection whatsoever if the Secretary of Agriculture was taking money out of the General Treasury. And no, no, they didn't. I'm saying the Civil Aeronautics Board, the Interstate Commerce Commission. I mean, I thought the Constitution would permit the public, mistaken or not, to have regulatory systems, to regulate every industry, perhaps, if they wanted to. To have a non-free enterprise system, perhaps, if they didn't want to. I don't know. I thought those are basically democratic questions. But if we have a system where the industry is regulated, I'm asking what is the First Amendment interest that is different from the same First Amendment interest of every flyer, every uh, customer of a trucker, every every customer of a utility. I'm, I'm just repeating myself, but it, it seems to me that there are vast numbers of consumers who used to have to spend lots of money they didn't want to spend for messages that regulators would either permit or require. The, the First Amendment issue, Your Honor, is two-pronged. 
first of all, they're, they're, not, they're forcing us to associate with our competitors. And it's not like the milk board, where milk is white and wet. And so the milk board doesn't have much opportunity to prefer one product over another. When you buy milk, you don't know if it's a Jersey or a Guernsey milk you're drinking. Whereas in our commodity, we have over 100 varieties of plums. My, my clients happen to grow some green plums. If I tell you today... And I, you, would, you would point out, I suppose, that, that you're not objecting to expenditure of money for advertising or for any other purpose by the government. The United States doesn't contend in this case that these are government expenditures, does it? No, in their footnote, Your Honor, they admit that this is not government speech, although one of their... It's not government speech. It would pose a, a, a different issue, so we can get rid of a whole lot of those regulatory programs that Justice Breyer was referring to and only limit ourselves to those in which a privately run organization spends money that is assessed, uh, assessed against competitors. Namely, all of the programs. But the point I was trying to make, Your Honor, here we have absolutely no studies whatsoever. When the Act was amended in 1965, it was done by one letter, one letter from the Secretary to Congress that said, I would like to implement advertising because it seems to me your argument is they did a lousy job here. But if they'd done a good job, it would be constitutional. If they could meet the Central Hudson test, which was the test they stipulated to before the Ninth Circuit in Calumet. We were not bound by that. We, we Why a Central Hudson test where, in fact, in Central Hudson and the other speech cases that seem relevant, there was a problem with a person having attributed to him a view that he really didn't hold and moreover an important view, and a political view, and a view of conscience. Is there anything like a political view, a view of conscience, an important critical view that the public would think that your client held because of these messages? Yes, Your Honor. What? Our, some of our clients testify they don't sponsor lying. They believe they, they don't sponsor what? Lying, misleading the public. The generic advertising program is that a California peach is better than a Georgia peach or a South Carolina peach, which together add up to the same amount of volume we have. They're saying that's not true. It's over 100 varieties, and if you grow that variety in South Carolina, it's going to taste the same as that variety tastes in California. It's a lie. Another one of our clients testified that he really resents the sexual subliminal messages of the advertising board. He happens to be on a, on a hospital board that deals with abusive children. They had the picture of this uh, uh, girl running in a sprinkler eating a nectarine. And the, the radio that says, so ju juicy, so sweet, a radio advertisement right afterwards that says, eating a peach reminds you of your first kiss in the back seat of your car. He has an ideological problem with that. But more importantly, they're sending a subliminal message that red is better. Now, if I ask each one of you to buy some well, green... Well, there's nothing in words to that effect in the ads, is there? No, Your Honor. It's, it's the depiction, the subliminal message that red is better. And some of these varieties, not only the red gin that you mentioned... W would you be here at all if, if the advertising were, in fact, generic advertising for California fruit? Well, first of all, they'd have to define to me, Your Honor, in some sense... Or is there some problem the problem... That's the point, exactly. Well, what? I don't know I'm what trying the, to understand what it is you say uh, causes uh, or re results in a First Amendment violation here. It is not clear to me. They take almost a million dollars a year 
to give it to my competitors, to advertise 15 varieties of fruit we don't grow, and force us to associate with our competitors in a manner and means... Don't you represent handlers? I represent handlers, shippers, but there's a big distinction, Your Honor. My handlers are growers who handle their own fruit. The handlers that run the committee are growers who are, are handlers who primarily ship fruit grown by other people. Well, other of course, you're, for, you're forced to associate, uh, using your term, by the terms of the marketing order anyway. If there were no uh, promotional advertising, you'd be, quote, forced to associate, close quote. So what we have here is a program that I think uh, insofar as its regulatory mechanisms other than promotion is, is clearly lawful and valid and constitutional. And it seems to me that you're building on that base once you have in, in place a marketing order, a marketing system, it seems to me logical that that marketing entity uh, engage in generic advertising. I, 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 don't, th I don't see why... I, uh, why, why the advertising suddenly uh, causes a forced association problem. Because what... You're already associated, but what whether you like it or not. In 1959, when they promulgated marketing orders for quality control, there was, there was no problem. We had no objection to that. But when they moved in 1971 for a legislative amendment, and in 1975 and 1976 actually adopted it with no rulemaking record of Congress at all, and then made it discretionary so that annually, the Secretary of Agriculture is annually supposed to be deciding whether to advertise, how much money to advertise, is there a problem in California that's different in other states? He didn't do any of that. Actually, no notice and comment through 1986 harvest, a few months before my trial started. I didn't yeah. know you were here on some APA claim. No. I thought what we had before us was a First Amendment claim, and I haven't heard a response yet as to what specific problem you have that triggers the First Amendment. Are, are you relying on the fact that there are assessments made and you have less money to advertise on your own? Absolutely. Is that part of your argument? That's absolutely what I was trying to express. Well, on. that's odd because I, I thought that there isn't much difference between an assessment or any other fee or tax that government might take, which necessarily, of course, limits your funds for advertising. You have less money. Yes, but, Your I mean, Honor... Uh, do you cite a case from this court to support you on that? Yes, PG&E. And that is that you're taking our money... PG&E. Yes. you have a citation? Yes, Your Honor. PG&E versus PUC of California cited in our merits brief. That's the case, Your Honor, where uh, you struck a, a rule that required PG&E to uh, promulgate the messages in their own envelopes to others. And, and the reason this court struck it is that it stated it would require PG&E to respond when they might not otherwise want to speak. And that's exactly what goes on here. We give almost a million dollars a year, of which 53% is devoted to generic collective advertising, to our competitors who grow fruit we don't grow, primarily. And then, when we do have a little bit of money left over and try to advertise our own brands, we have to spend a lot of it trying to change the minds of the consumer. Do you say that your growers do not 
that your clients do not grow peaches or nectarines? Uh, our clients grow peaches, plums, and nectarines, but there's over a hundred varieties of each peach, plum, and nectarine, unlike beef and unlike milk. Where you don't believe that all California peaches are the same. Absolutely not. And that is the message that this advertising uh, conveys to the public. Absolutely, Your Honor. So they're conveying precisely the message that you want to counter. They're conveying exactly, Your Honor. And your associational objection, as I take it, is not an objection to simply being regulated with everybody else, associated on that basis, but rather the objection of being presented to the public as in league with everybody else. All, all us California peach growers are the same. California peaches are California peaches, and California peach growers are California peach growers. Exactly, Your Honor. You don't like some of these other peach growers, do you? We, we want you to buy our yellow nectarines and not their red nectarines. They taste better. May I ask, if this were a, a homogenous product, you, you then would not have a problem? It would be... Uh, that's correct, Your Honor. It would and be if much the advertising was limited to those features of the California peaches that were, in fact, common to all California peaches, you would not have a problem. If they could establish that California had a problem, which the government had an interest in solving, but there is no record whatsoever. Well, I assume they could problem. do that. Assume they could, assume they could establish that the Secretary of Agriculture is convinced that we ought to sell more California peaches and that therefore they ought to have a program that advertises the features of California peaches that all California peaches share. Would that be permissible? I believe, Your Honor, that the answer would be yes if there was only one variety of peaches and it was grown in 33 states and for some reason California's economic environment was in imminent danger of collapse and no other states in the country. It doesn't have to be in collapse, does it? I mean, well, in frame. They that the meat industry was in imminent danger of collapse, and they assessed... Are you saying that that's the bottom line that they must sell? It's a question I asked Mr. Jenkins about, and he said no, that frame is just like this case. Uh, but I couldn't grasp from your brief whether you were saying this. none of this forced advertising can be justified unless... There's some compelling need shown in the particular industry. That was one argument that you made. And then you sort of had another argument that said, well, they don't give us credit for our own advertising, and they're advertising some varieties that belong to particular uh, members of the committee. So which is it? Are you saying none of this is any good, or some of it may be good, but some isn't? We're saying both, Your Honor. We're saying, first, if you want to force me to associate with my competitors, when we're head-on competing, that I want you to buy my yellow nectarines and not your red nectarines, and you're giving my money to the person who grows those red nectarines, you've got to show a problem that requires a governmental compelling interest to solve under association rights. But may I interrupt again, Mr. Campaign? Supposing that... Uh you agreed that if the advertising were restricted to common features of California peaches, and there was an adequate justification, the industry is having all sorts of troubles, people are buying bananas instead of peaches, 
uh, and the advertising was restricted. You say, I think you say that'd be okay. But you're complaining because they advertise the uh, features of the peaches that are unique to some varieties and not shared by all the others. Now, supposing 97% of the advertising concentrates on common features and 3% is bad under your analysis. Is the whole program bad or just the 3%? Under that hypothetical, of course, Your Honor, if there was a compelling governmental interest to solve some serious problem, right. and we only grew one variety in all the states, the answer would be the 3% would be bad. However, that's not the facts of this case, Your Honor. A peach is not a peach. A plum is not a plum. Yeah, but they've uh, made a lot of findings saying a peach is a peach. They haven't made we any have such findings, Your Honor. As a matter of fact, the, the record of this trial where ALJ Baker said, bring in all the rulemaking record and produce all your witnesses, proves that there's over 100 varieties of each and they're completely different. And I can prove it to you. See, with reference to the marketing have is whether you're really attacking the program right. as a program or maladministration of the program. Right. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear the, the end of I'm trying to figure out whether the program is just sort of per se bad or has it just been poorly administered. You make a very persuasive case that they've made some bad decisions along the way. But does that taint the entire program? That's the basic question I see. This particular program, on this particular 19 days of trial record, it was tainted from the very beginning. They went to Congress on one letter, and all they said is, the majority of the growers want it. That's but this all. is not an APA problem. What I, I thought your point was that the First Amendment requires that you be careful and do it right. Just like Turner. As is not required in some other areas. Exactly. You must demonstrate the compelling interest. For over 20 years, they didn't produce any studies or any reports. You keep drifting away from the First Amendment, and it does get to sound like an Administrative Procedure Act problem, but that is not your point. That's, Your point is that these I's uh, 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 have to be dotted and the T's have to be crossed right. because the First Amendment is at stake. That's right, Your Honor. Of, of course, to the extent that uh, the, the marketing order with, without the promotional uh, aspects of it helps everybody to market their peaches, I suppose you're helping to market Red Jim through the marketing order. Yes. And, and given the fact that you, you are therefore in a common, common marketing entity anyway, it seems to me to much diminish your First Amendment claim. I don't believe uh, Whether you like it or not, uh, big big growers may be helping little, smaller growers um, to, to market their products. And maybe, and, and maybe that's not cost-effective for you and you'd rather have something else. But you begin with the premise that this is a valid program. But you're forgetting a very key important point, Your Honor. At least we're playing on a level playing field. When the agency says you can't sell a nectarine, whether it's a red gem nectarine or a Tom Grand yellow nectarine, if it has a worm in it, we're not going to advertise to people and change our message that we want you to eat worms. But when 50% of this advertising dollar goes to spending, as their own testimony indicates, towards varieties that are controlled by 40 to 60% of uh, single varieties controlled by 40 to 60 percent of the handlers that aren't us. We're not playing on a level playing field. We well, don't you also distinguish between regulations which don't have any speech import to them, like quality and so on, plus uh, some sort of regulation that forces you to spend money for, for speech? Exactly, Your Honor. I, exactly. I, agree, I agree with you that a peach is not a peach. I really do. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I love these juicy peaches which you can hardly ever get. I understand that. But I'm also concerned about turning First Amendment district courts into regulatory agencies. And therefore, I'm worried about this problem of the air. I promise you I disagreed a lot with what the Air Transport Association 
might have advertised in the rate base, the customer pays, and I pay for it a flyer. That, that's what I'm worried about. Now, you've brought up PG&E as a, as a precedent. Mm -hmm. but then I look at PG&E and I look at it and think, my goodness, that was a case where there was a more clear First Amendment problem because it was the company's property. The company had to put the message in the envelope. It was absolutely clear that the company was underwriting this a message with which it disagreed rather than they analogize it to like a public forum. So I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that case, because as I looked at that plurality opinion quickly, it seemed to me that yours was a more attenuated interest by a long shot than the interest there. But I raise that so you can discuss it. Yes, sir. I can give you a good example. When Mr. Growen testified that in 1987 they took $675,000 from him and gave it to his competitors of a committee of nectarine growers that was run by his competitor, Mr. Jimmy Ito, who, who proprietary variety is the Red Jim Nectarine, that Mr. Growen can neither grow nor buy nor handle because all the fruit has to be handled by Mr. Ito. He, has, he respects Mr. Ito, but he just doesn't want his money to go to him because they have a marketing window when they're producing the same, he produces Prima and competes with Well, Red that Jim. may well have been an error as the government conceded in its argument, but you don't overturn the whole program, I suppose. You would overturn that. But it's inherent to the entire system, Your Honor. Well, are there other examples where uh, in these advertisements a, a single proprietary item that no one else could uh, acquire was advertised by name, and if so, what and where? Uh, the Maybell Nectarine, Your Honor. Excuse me? The Maybell Nectarine. And it was specifically referred to in yes, the Yes, I there. believe in the very same exhibit. What, what these speeches... It, 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 it's, it's, it's in that same section. I can't remember the exact. Weren't the peaches selected the because peaches. of the volume? Uh, doesn't, it, doesn't, doesn't the chart which lists all the peaches uh, reflect the, uh, the, the volume of peaches that were sold through the marketing entity? Wasn't that the criteria for inclusion? Yes. Mr. Field, the chief employee of the committee, testified that they tried to advertise the top 15 producing varieties and to leave the other hundred minor varieties behind. But Your Honor, so, so, spending, so it's based on volume. They're spending all of their TV and radio advertising money on each California peaches because they're all the same. Before July 4th, 80% of the money. They're reserving 20% of it to make that. Was, there, was there a finding to that effect that that's the necessary purport of this ad or can we just tell it from, the, from reading the ad? There's a finding to that effect in Judge Baker's decision, Your Honor. To what effect? To, to the effect that the advertising goes primarily or overwhelmingly to support the proposition that all California peaches are desirable? That are the same? And are, are the same? Yes. And, Mr. I'm sorry. And uh, she further... You object to that. You, you'd be here even if they weren't pushing the Red Jim or whatever this nectarine is. Uh, Absolutely, because that's not truthful. I want well, to tell you to go home and buy green plums and give them to your wife. And you're thinking to yourself right now, you don't want to give your wife diarrhea, but green plums green are delicious. Green plums? I would never give my wife a green but, plum. Mr. Campaign, I've never even seen a green plum. <laughs> I thought plums, you're, you're, plums aren't regulated anymore, so why are we talking about those? Because, Your Honor, we have almost $6 million in trust, green and the Ninth plums. Circuit ordered that there would be a determination as to whether or not those monies that we related to plums from 1987 through 1991, so plums are still relevant. And we grow green plums. Oh, and the only ad Excuse me. I thought the only ad programs, once plums were out of it, were for peaches and nectarines. 
That's true, Your Honor, but it's not moot because the regulation never changed that required the Secretary to annually decide whether or not to advertise, if so, where, how much money. And Mr. Chief Justice raised a very interesting question to the solicitor, and that is, doesn't this all kind of follow the law of supply and demand? But one thing we notice here is that as the crop goes down, the assessments change versus go up. In other words, the promulgation record we have in existence here, it's not tied to solving any problem. Well, Mr. Campaign, that raises something I wanted to get back to you on. As I understand it, even if the advertising were truthful, and even if the advertising were truly generic, you would still claim that there was a First Amendment violation, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Because there is no justification in the first place. There is no necessity. There's no problem, and because there's no problem, there's no governmental interest. Let's solve the problem that doesn't exist. Let me ask you a final question. If that is so, why do you concede that you have no First Amendment objection to the, in effect, to the forced association with the growers for non-speech purposes? Because in, in that sense, when they pass a quality control rule that says that all growers of all 100 different varieties, green and red, can't sell anything that's got a worm in it. That doesn't impinge on my First Amendment. You're saying that really is not an association within the meaning of the First Amendment, aren't no. you? No, that's just pure regulation. So there really isn't an association component here to, to, the, the, regulatory, to the regulatory scheme, which is exclusive of the speech problem that you raise. Is exactly. That your We're not here, Your Honor, trying to vitiate the entire marketing order. We don't. We accept the nine cents that goes to the quality control. We're only speaking to the 10 cents per carton that goes to the forced association with our competitors who grow different varieties. And basically, in some varieties, take over $200 an acre, which is more than our profit margin in some varieties, and force us in the limited amount of time we have. Thank you, Mr. Campaign. Uh, Mr. Jenkins, you have two minutes remaining. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I'd like to begin just very briefly by stating that as to the administration of this program, uh, most of the, the uh, factual findings that respondents cite come from the ALJ's findings on the APA claim against these uh, programs. Uh, those were overturned by the judicial officer who found those findings as to bias, as to red is better and what have you, to be clearly erroneous. Uh, both of the courts below affirmed that holding, the APA holding. And, and so I think those findings are simply out of this case. The court ne need not necessarily ignore them completely, but no final adjudication has been made upholding these findings of, of bias. Um, if I could turn to the question of, of the government interest here, I think we have demonstrated uh, that there's a free rider problem uh, that's important and comparable to the union and integrated bar context, uh, that in agriculture, and particularly as to these commodities, there are many small producers who could not engage in the kind of uh, economies of scale uh, that's available under this program. That's not necessarily true in some other industries. The record does speak, for instance, to the California almond industry. Uh, and this Court has repeatedly held that where Congress finds a problem, and deals with it in a way that is constitutionally justifiable, the fact, at least outside of the strict scrutiny context, that it has not chosen to employ those remedies elsewhere does not render unconstitutional its action where it has done so. Does anything in the law prevent bias? Does anything in the law, let, let's assume that, that 51 percent of the California growers grow red peaches or red nectarines or whatever color red things we were talking about, 
anything in the law would, would prevent this money from being spent with advertisements showing only the red fruit? I, I think so, Justice Scalia, as a practical what, matter. What provision is that? May I complete my answer? Yes. Uh, the uh, AMAA provides that the Secretary must find that pr- particular activities are, uh, tend to effectuate the goals of the Act. Uh, the uh, Agricultural Marketing Service has guidelines which, for instance, prevent the criticism of other commodities or products. So I think both as a practical matter and as a legal matter, there are checks on misuse of the system. Thank you, Mr. Jenkins. The case is submitted.